Okay, I trust you have the lesson, lesson 63. It's hard to believe we're in lesson 63. We've been in this a long time. Actually, we started uh, May of last year, just if you haven't taken the opportunity to look back in your notes and see when we began this study together. At one point, I thought it would have taken us a lot longer. Some of the sections were larger, and yet we could narrow them down. Uh, though they were larger, we could narrow them down into more manageable uh, studies. But in either case, I trust the study has been a profit to you all and a benefit. It certainly has to me, especially this last section in which we have talked about our spiritual state. We have, in the last few lessons, uh, concerned ourselves with fears, with doubts, with regard to our salvation, having our assurance of salvation upon wrong grounds, resting in false grounds that we are right with Christ when we are not. And as much as we may not like to think about that, the Bible is very clear that many will say in that day, Lord, Lord, many will knock upon the door as ignorance does in Pilgrim's Progress at the very end of, of that allegory, expecting himself to be well welcomed in, and instead he is bound hand and foot and cast into hell. And if you, don't, if you don't, do not remember the way Bunyan ends Pilgrim's Progress, he ends it on the sobering note when he says, and then I realized that there was a way to hell from the gates, from the gate of heaven as well as from the city of destruction. In other words, his whole point was, then I realized that someone can go that far into, in the things of God in ignorance, with presumption, or whatever it may be, and one can go so far as to die with vain hope and expect themselves to be welcomed into heaven when they are barred from heaven. That is a spiritual reality ever so clear in the Scriptures, all the more clear in the passing of many from this life into the next, on vain hope, coming to find great surprise. So we were forced in this latter section of Bolton's book to wrestle with our own grounds upon what are we hoping for eternal life? What are we resting in? What are we trusting in? And we were urged to be mindful that our hope and trust are entirely in Christ, that we are resting upon His work alone, that we have no worth and no merits to ourselves, and we are secure in Christ. If that is the case, then the next thing we took up was hearing from Bolton and what he had to teach us about true spiritual joy. And we spent a lesson being reminded that no one has cause to be happy but a Christian. No one. All unbelievers have absolutely no happy or no reason to be happy, to rejoice, to laugh, to cheer. The unbeliever has no reason to be happy. Only a Christian does. Now Bolton comes to the very end of his book, is the end of his directions for a comfortable walk with God. And he wants to strengthen the weak. He wants to comfort the weak. And the church will always be uh, filled with various degrees of Christians, by which I mean the mature and the immature, the strong and the weak. None of us are all in the same place. So the church, especially I think, maybe I'm sure it's always been this way, but we tend to think in our own day things are worse than they've ever been. And it seems in my mind that the church is more full of weak Christians than it's ever been. Simply because, as we well know in our own day, the church is so biblically illiterate. How many Christians read their Bible? How many Christians have ever read the Bible cover to cover? How many Christians have ever read more than maybe one book of the Bible? Maybe the letter to Ephesians, which is six chapters. 
How many have actually read the New Testament or the Old Testament? You ask around, you'll see that we are, we are biblically illiterate. We don't know our Bibles. And if we don't know our Bibles, how do we know our God who revealed himself in the Scriptures? So I think we live in times when it seems that weak Christians, immature Christians, abound. It's our own fault that we are weak, but we do abound. And so Bolton, I think, pastorally, uh, being pastorally sensitive, he wants to comfort the weak and he wants to comfort the doubting, not necessarily from their own uh, illiteracy, but from their own unbelief. We talked last time about the fact that our lack of joy, a lot of times a lack of Christian joy, has to do with the fact that we don't take God at His Word. God says we're forgiven, but we don't believe we're forgiven, and so our, our, you know, our, our heads are cast down. God says that we, we have pardoned, and yet we don't believe that we're pardoned, and so our hearts are still struggling with doubts. We need to take God at His Word. He talked about that last time, and now he concludes this entire section by showing us that we have reason to be lifted up, to have our heads and our spirits lifted up. And so he speaks now, particularly as a pastor, to troubled Christians, those who are weak, and those who are still detained, as he says, in the chains and fetters of sadness, and have kept themselves from true Christian joy. He says we must learn seven things, and he maybe somewhat of a, you know, contrasting things. It was hard to try to figure out exactly how to title this section, but seven antidotes, I told you last week, seven antidotes to a troubled conscience might be a good way to think about these seven things. But he wants to encourage us along seven fronts. We'll walk through these together and we'll wind up at a wonderful passage in Isaiah 55. If you want to get your Bibles open to that place, we'll wind up there eventually. These were all very simple points that he puts forward. We must learn seven things in order to encourage our hearts. First of all, we must learn the difference between no grace and weak grace. No grace and weak grace. Many Christians think of themselves because they see themselves as bruised reeds, because they see themselves as smoking flax, as smoking coals and embers, and they don't see themselves as a flame for the Lord, as strong and mature for the Lord. They conclude that they have no grace at all. So, as, as we might say, they throw the baby out with the bathwater. And he gives a couple of examples, examples here, which I think are very important for us to at least evaluate or to consider. He says, first of all, this particular person, this weak Christian, they grieve that they cannot grieve for their sins more than they do. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. They want more of Christ. They groan for a sense and an assurance of forgiveness from God. They weep over their corruptions. They weep over the coldness of their hearts. They weep over the distance that they feel between themselves and God. They weep over the fact that they can't pray as they would. And therefore, because of these things, because they're not where they think they should be, then they determine that they have no grace at all. Bolton says, you need to understand the difference between having no grace and having weak grace. Those whom he describes in this section are not those who have no grace. They have weak grace. Now, how do we know grace is even present? Because they're discontent with where they are with relation to God. They're discontent that they can't pray as they would. They're grieved over the fact that they sin as they do. They're grieved over the backwardness of their heart. They cry out for more of Christ. They want more comfort. They know Christ has it. 
they constantly bring themselves to the throne of grace and they cry out to God that they're not better than they, than they are. This is a sign of grace. It may be weak grace because they're falling short in some areas, maybe, Bolton says, but it's a sign of true grace. Christ never said, blessed are the strong in faith. Blessed are those who are assured of eternal life. Christ says, blessed are those who believe, and more than that, he said, blessed are those who hunger. Right? Those who cry out, hunger and thirst for righteousness in the Beatitudes. It was in Matthew 5, verse 6, I think. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, his first point is, never underestimate a spiritual, heavenly appetite. The evidence of grace in such a weak Christian is the fact that there is appetite. There is a heavenly, spiritual appetite. And this is so critical. An unbeliever has no appetite for the things of God. The things of God, if he got them in his belly, he would vomit them up as soon as they arrived. He has no appetite for the things of God. He wants nothing to do with righteousness, nothing to do with God's Lord, Christ's lordship over his life. He is autonomous, and as we learned in Sunday school this morning, we are born haters of God, at enmity with God, and the unbeliever has no spiritual appetite for the things of Christ. So, though we may be weak, though our prayers may be cold, though we may not be able to pray as we ought, though we not, may not be able to read as we ought, yet if we have that appetite, it is a sign of true grace. So, never lose sight of how comforting even the appetite itself can be. A second antidote to a troubled conscience is we need to think, we need to remember not to make sense and feeling the touchstone for the truth of our spiritual state. He brings up the example of a sleeping man. A sleeping man doesn't feel the fact that he's alive because he's asleep. But he's very much alive, though he's asleep. And Bolton very quickly says, don't confuse what we know to be so by faith and what we feel to be so by sense. And this is always a struggle in the Christian life. I don't know how many books have been written on faith and feelings. Understanding the difference between, wait a minute, how do we, where do feelings belong in a Christian life? Well, feelings have place in the Christian life. But we don't, we don't judge our eternal condition by our feelings. Sometimes I don't feel very saved. But I'm not supposed to rest my hope and, of, and my assurance of eternal life on whether I feel saved on a given day. We rest our hope of eternal life upon the promises of God in the Word. That's our ground, upon the person and the work of Christ. So Bolton pastorally here introduces this very important reminder. Don't confuse the two. You're not always going to feel redeemed. You're not always going to feel saved. You're not always going to feel forgiven. We need to rest everything upon what God has said and understand that we live by faith. So many people cry out to Christ for salvation, but because they don't feel any different, they figure, well, it didn't work. It's like we're expecting something. We're expecting some dramatic change. But the change is between, it's a change in relationship between us and God. Being born again is a change in status. And as we learned in Sunday school, that has dramatic effects on our change to everything around us. But we ourselves don't feel that necessarily. We ourselves begin to live that out as God's Spirit, who now lives in us, shows Himself through our, our daily lives. A third antidote to a troubled conscience, letter C, is not to disgrace our own graces by looking at another Christian's perfections. 
We talked about this before, and he brings it again back to us here at the end. When we compare ourselves with other Christians, whom we see to be more mature than us, maybe great intercessors, maybe what we might call great prayer warriors, maybe they know their Bible backward and forward, they're always quoting Scripture, and we look at this person and we say, Oh, nothing. I don't compare. I can't stack up. I can't compare to this person. There's no way. And all of a sudden, what do we think of ourselves? I have nothing. Because we've made this person, in our minds, we've made this person a standard. This person has become a standard and a mark of holiness and achievement. And so we begin to discount, and as Bolton says, we begin to to disgrace the work of God in our lives. Maybe we do need to study Scripture more. Maybe we do need to learn to learn some more Scripture and memorize some more Scripture. Maybe we do need to persevere and, as the Puritans say, pray until you pray through. Maybe we need to do that more. But just because we don't measure up to someone else doesn't mean, again, we have no grace at all. We're not told to go around and compare ourselves with each other in order to determine whether we're Christians. As Bolton helpfully reminds us here, look upon other Christians for imitation and for quickening but not for dejection and self-binding. If any of us wants to compare ourselves to somebody, then let's compare ourselves to the Lord Jesus, who did all things pleasing to the Father, who never sinned. There's a righteous life. There's the standard. And we all fall short. None of us is where we ought to be. If we have a Christian in our lives, a fellow brother or sister, whom we esteem for their godliness, then let us do as Paul says when he says, follow me or imitate me as I imitate Christ. Set the person before you as an example and as a quickening and flaming and enlightening example to encourage you to press on. But don't let that person's holiness become a standard in light of which you determine you have nothing at all. We do need to be careful the people we hang around. We need to be careful the people we set before us. And I think we're all, we all should be encouraged to set before ourselves, as the Apostle says, to set before ourselves good, godly examples. You will be like the people you hang around. The law of association. If you hang around weak, immature Christians, then wherever you may be, that's where you're going to be. Okay? That's what's going to happen. Maybe your resolutions are firm. Maybe your principles are strong. Maybe you're a strong Christian and your conscience is sensitive. But begin hanging around those who are weak and immature for whatever reason. Conscience is going to be numb. Your principles are going to be compromised. Your resolutions are going to be on the back burner before you know it. Because you're going to get used to this company of Christians and you're going to fit in right here. And that's where you're going to be. So we all need to set before ourselves and gather to ourselves the wisest in the land. Set before ourselves the mature, the godly. Set before ourselves those whom we ought to follow. Put before ourselves godly, bright examples of light and follow after them. So that Paul can say, follow me as I follow Christ. Why would we want to follow follow Paul? Because as he says himself, I did more than all of the apostles. Yet not I, but the grace of God in me, he says. 1 Corinthians 15. He recognizes that it was God who worked in him. But nevertheless, Paul could be set before us as an example. So find men, find women, find brothers, find sisters. 
set them before you, make them your friends, and say, I want to learn from you. We need to do that. And that will help us grow and mature. A fourth antidote to a troubled conscience is to acknowledge, letter D, we need to acknowledge that as long as we are in this life, as long as we are here in this world, heavenly graces like faith will ever ebb and flow. They will wax and wane. They will faint and flourish by reason of the combat between the flesh and the spirit. We need to remember that this is the wilderness. Right? We're, we're, we're journeying toward Canaan. We live in that period, not that flows with milk and honey. We live in the period of difficulty, the period of trial. Because of our war with the flesh, because of our war with our own sins, faith will one day be strong, another day weak. One day your prayers are going to be so fervent and so vibrant, you'll think you're in the, in the presence of God Himself. You'll be on cloud nine, as it were. And you'll be so excited about that, that you'll wake up the next morning and expect the same type of private prayer closet experience, and it's going to be like a deep freeze. It's going to be so cold, so lifeless. And you're going to think, what just happened yesterday? What, what was, where was all that? Where's the fire now? Lord, what happened? How did I cool down so much? It's the nature of faith to be strong and then weak. It's the nature of faith to go forward and then ebb back to wax and to wane. We need to understand that our graces are like that. Why? Because of this body of flesh. As Paul cried out in Romans chapter 7, toward the end of his life, Paul cries out, wretched man that I am. Right? What I want to do, I find myself not doing. What I don't want to do, I find myself doing. If Paul says that, at the end of his days, if Paul says that as a mature Christian, thinking, why should we expect anything different? We're going to have that struggle. So just, his whole point is, understand that that's the reality. He goes on to say, and he spends a pretty good section on this, if a man were to tell me, he says, if a man were to tell me that he has ever prayed without temptations to the contrary, without coldness of heart, without distracting thoughts, that he has ever had a strong, unshakable faith and was never bothered by fears or doubts or faintness of spirit, we could confidently reply to him that he has never prayed acceptably and he's never believed savingly. If a man has always prayed without any trouble at all, Bolton says, we could say of that man, he's never prayed once. It's the nature of prayer. It's the nature of the Christian graces. Now, why is that? It's no surprise to us in all the studies we've just done in Matthew 4 and 1 Peter 5. We have an enemy. The minute you get down on your knees to seriously and sincerely pray from the depths of your heart and all is clear and all is honest and all is sincere, you know who's right there. <laughs> you know who's going to oppose that. The arrows are flying. So we're going to meet with those struggles because we fight a spiritual battle. So again, understand that that's the nature of the Christian life. Don't, therefore, be so discouraged as to throw in the towel and say, I'm not a Christian. That's where Bolton is going with that. Fifthly, another antidote, to believe the spirit of truth and the word of God before the father of lies, before natural reason, and the suggestions of flesh and blood. In other words, you may feel one way, Satan may say one thing, but when you bring everything, lay everything on the table, 
believe nothing but the Word of God. If God says you are forgiven, then don't believe what the devil, devil says. Don't believe what you feel. Believe what God says. Let the Word of God be the trump, if you will, that trumps everything to the contrary. And there will be many things to the contrary. Your own heart's going to wrestle against you. Satan's arrows and fiery darts are going to fly at you. It is the shield of faith that opposes every dart of the devil. And how do we put forth that shield of faith? We saw it in Matthew 4. Put forth, it is written. It is written. It is written. Stand upon the word of God and oppose your own reason, flesh and blood, the father of lies. Sixthly, we need to understand and learn the defects, distractions, and failings in our spiritual duties if we strive against them with an upright heart and grieve over them with a repentant heart. They're so far from testifying to the absence of grace that they actually argue for the presence of grace. This takes us back to what we said in the beginning. It's a similar point. The fact that we're striving against these things, the fact that we are opposing these things, that we're striving against our spiritual, our imperfections and weakness, weaknesses in the Christian life, the fact that we're discontent about these things and we're groaning over them to God, these are signs of grace. Right? If we're happy with failures, if we're happy with coldness, if we're happy with spiritual ignorance, if we're completely content to never talk to God in prayer, never read the Bible, and never go to church, if we're completely content to call ourselves Christians, claim to be Christians, and never have any sort of relationship with God, that is a problem. But if we call ourselves Christians, and we're struggling with many of these things, and we're wrestling against them, and we're praying against them, and we're striving against them, this is a good sign. It's the evidence of grace rather than the evidence of its absence. And then finally, the seventh antidote is not to confine, undervalue, and extenuate the mercies of God, the promises of life, and the present graces which you possess. Don't underestimate what God has said to you in His Word. Don't undervalue the mercies of God which you enjoy in your life. Don't underestimate the presence of grace in your life. Whatever grace, graces you have, your faith, your peace of conscience, these things may be very small, but they're gifts of God. They may be very small, but they're fruits of the Spirit. Don't undervalue these things. Rest upon them. Thank God for them and cultivate them that you may grow with greater assurance that God truly has ministered to you by His Spirit. So those are seven antidotes to a troubled conscience. The very wise, wise points that he makes with regard to many things but especially with regard to the weak believer who's struggling with weakness of grace. At that point, Bolton switches to deal with one more person. And this is the person who is set, who is set back and troubled by his sins. So that he really here addresses maybe a new believer. And he, in the last section of his book, he provides three responses, three words of comfort to a struggling, struggling new believer. Could be anyone, of course, but for him it was a, a new believer who's struggling to find comfort in the work of Christ and in the promises of the gospel. 
If you look on the page two there at the top, this is the scenario that he paints. The picture that he draws, he said, A poor soul is greatly convicted of his sins against God, and he lifts his eyes to Jesus Christ in hopes of turning his sorrows into spiritual joys. He's convicted. He hears the gospel being preached from the pulpit. And he's encouraged to lift his eyes to look to Christ. And so he lifts his eyes in faith to look to Christ. But from the depth of the pit of his sinfulness, he suddenly cries out, Oh, the news is too good to be true. It's too good to be true. Whereupon he refuses comfort and sinks under guilt and fear. His sins weigh so heavily upon his conscience, he cries out, God couldn't possibly forgive me. I'm such a sinner. Bolton's pastoral response is this. Don't consider what you're worthy to receive. Consider what God delights to give. None of us is worthy to receive the grace and mercy of God. We're all too great sinners to, to be forgiven. In and of ourselves, we don't deserve pardon from God. It's not a matter of whether one of us deserves forgiveness. It's not a matter of whether one of us deserves eternal life. It's a matter of whether God delights to give it. Right? God's mercy is sovereignly distributed. In Romans chapter 9, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will harden whom I will harden. The Lord's mercy is given freely and sovereignly. So it's not a matter of examining to ourselves in light of the gospel, well, I'm, a, I'm unworthy of a blessing. It can't be true for me. Rather, look to the Lord's freedom, His delight to give. Luke 12.32, Jesus comforts the disciples. Your Father, your Heavenly Father, delights to give you the kingdom. God delights to give you the kingdom. And if we come to Him with faith, come to Him believingly, He will pour all of His blessings upon us. He will delight to give it, not because we deserve it, but because His heart is filled with mercy toward us. So, if God delights to give us everything, then why would we refuse to open the door of the gospel with faith? Why do we refuse to come to the door? And why do we refuse to exercise faith in Christ? But then the reply comes again. The man says, okay, well, maybe... Maybe I could be, maybe a sinner could be forgiven. A sinner with my sins and could be forgiven. But then he complains that his sins are more than any man's. That when he searches for the bottom of his sins in order to surrender them to God, in order to repent and confess them, he finds that the more he searches, the more sins he finds. He finds, if you will, that there's no bottom to his sins. There's no shore to his sins. He finds as he digs into his heart, lets his conscience convict him, that his sins are far more than he imagined. Far more than could be forgiven. And more than that, they are of all sorts. Sins of thought, word, deed, emotion. Sins of violation. Sins of neglect. Sins of terrible evil and magnitude. There's no way that God could forgive me. Look at B1 on your notes. This is Bolton's answer. And this is no more bold an answer than the Scriptures afford us in Christ. He says, let his sins be what they are. And he may add to them all the sins which have, are, 
and shall yet be committed by every man from the creation of the world to its end. And yet, in a heart truly humbled under them, heartily hating them all, and coming with a sincere spiritual hunger at Christ's call to be disburdened of them, they can make no more resistance against the mercies of God than a little spark of fire against a mighty sea thrown into the midst of it. Nay, infinitely less. Take a man for how many ever sins he has committed. Put upon his shoulders the sins of every single man who has ever lived or will live. Put all of these sins on that one man. And he is still not only able to be forgiven, but far more than that, the grace and the love of God in Christ is infinitely able and capable to wash everything away. There can't be too many sins. To, put a, to, put, to say that our sins are too many is to say that there is a limit to, the, to what the blood of Christ can cleanse. As we all well know, the blood of Christ shed on the cross could have redeemed 10,000 worlds of men. If God intended to save universe upon universe upon universe of humanity, they would have all been redeemed if it pleased God. No man's sins are too many, are too great, as much as Jesus says in Mark chapter 3, all the sins of men, whatever they commit, shall be forgiven them. This is where he finally brings us to Isaiah 55. All this man's sins, even if he had every sin upon him, would still be finite, both in number and in nature. Isn't that amazing? Put upon the man's shoulders... Put to his credit, put in his lost column, all the sins of all the men of all the world for all time, and you would still, sooner or later, come to the end of it. Sooner or later, you would reach the very last one that would be written in that column, number whatever it may be, you're going to reach the end. It is finite, how many ever it was, there's a finite number there. Compare that to the infinite value of the cleansing blood of Christ. There's simply no comparison. And this beautiful passage in Isaiah 55 unfolds this very truth. Listen to what God says, beginning in verse 6. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Well, who is to seek the Lord? We might imagine that those not so bad, those not so corrupt, those not so evil. And yet, what does the Lord say? Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly Pardon. Not only He will pardon, He will abundantly pardon. And whom is God pardoning here? The wicked, the unrighteous, the worst of the worst of the worst. God is calling here in His mercy to the worst man out there, to the chief of sinners, and say, yes, you, the worst of them all, come and I will forgive you. I'll wipe it all away. Now at this point, with Isaiah, we might say, whoa, Lord. Do you realize what you're doing? Do you realize what kind of promise you're making? Do you really 
Are you really saying you're going to forgive him? Do you really mean that you're going to forgive the wicked? The unrighteous? Lord, surely you can't mean that. Surely you don't mean. Surely this is an exaggeration, Lord. This is what's going through the reader's mind at this point. This is why God goes on to say, For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. That's the context in which that verse shows up. We always quote that verse. God's thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And we apply it all over the place. This is its context. God says, I am going to forgive those that you would never forgive. I'm going to forgive the worst of the worst of the worst. I have such compassion and such mercy and the blood of my son is of such infinite value that there is no limit to the type of person, to the number of sins that I will wash completely clean. That's how great my redemption and my redeeming mercy is. It is as high above your mercy as the heavens are above the earth. That's how great my mercy is to sinners. It's an amazing context that we often lose sight of it because we misquote it. Taking it out of context and applying it to other things. So the principle is true in many places. This is where it belongs. Look at how Bolton rewords this, or he provides somewhat of an explanation, I guess. When God says, as he speaks in verses 8 and 9, this is what God means. Do not cast the incomprehensibleness of my mercy into the narrow mold of your finite conception of it. Do not so unworthily abridge and confine the unlimited and boundless compassion of the mighty Lord of heaven and earth. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. They are both infinitely higher. You would have me break a bruised reed. You would have me quench a smoking wick. But my mercy towards the humble is infinitely above yours. To all who are truly humble and believing souls who heartily hate and are set against all sin, I will show abundant mercy and pardon. That's what God's saying. You're going to take my incomprehensible mercy and you're going to put it into the narrow confines of the mold of your forgiving ability? Into the mold of your narrow compassion? Don't even think about it. My mercy is greater than yours by the heavens above the earth. And I will abundantly pardon. This is amazing passage. That's why he can call to the wicked. You forsake your way. You forsake your evil thoughts. You come to me. I promise you. I'll wash it all away. Bolton has a caution here. He says, beware of misapplying this comfort. This is tremendous comfort in Isaiah 55. He says, but beware that you don't misapply it to yourself. For God's mercy will never wash away the least sinful stain from the proud heart of any unhumbled sinner. As the infinite power of God is limited by His own will to use that power, 
So the infinite mercies of God are limited by his truth. And he has told us that none shall have part in his mercies but those who repent and believe. This is important to come back to the context. What God announces in verses, the latter half of chapter, latter half of verse 7 and then verse 8 and 9. But the latter half of verse 7, what God promises in terms of the comfort, it's unbelievable. It's incredible what God is saying. But let's not forget to whom he's saying it. Let the wicked forsake his way, let the unrighteous forsake his thoughts. In other words, to forsake is to turn your back to and repent. So this is comfort promised from the throne above, from he, is, he who is infinite in power and infinite in mercy. This is unbelievable comfort. But it is pronounced and promised to the penitent, to the humble, to the one who will forsake his way. That's to whom God makes this promise. Many will come along and snatch that promise up and run away with it and claim it for their own who have no right to it. It is those to whom God will say, Depart from me, I never knew you. You would think by this time that this poor new believer would be convinced. But there's a third and a final objection to this, letter C, to this, he replies that while he can see the majority of his sins as forgivable, yet he cannot see that God will pardon his bosom's sin. It's interesting how Bolton brings us full circle, doesn't he? You remember, so many months ago now, when we got into the particular directions, I think it was with the particular, maybe it was the, the uh, I don't know, the, the ones leading the way to that. But I think it was the first particular direction from Bolton. The very first particular direction for a comfortable walk with God was get rid of your bosom sin. You can't go anywhere in the Christian life. You can't go anywhere in maturing in Christ unless you get rid of your bosom sin. Bolton comes right back to it at the end. The man says, okay, maybe you're right. Maybe God can forgive all of my sins, though they be of such a great number. But He will never pardon my bosom sin. It's as black as hell. It has done more to nail Christ to the cross than all of the rest of my sins combined. And it lies like a mountain of lead upon my heart. Surely God will think it fitter to burn this one out by the flames of hell than to wash it out by the blood of Christ. For this, the man never hopes to, be, to repent with any success. He never hopes that God can forgive. Listen to Bolton's response. He begins by saying, but why not? How great is your bosom sin after all? Is it greater than Paul's shedding the blood of the saints? Is it greater than the sins mentioned in 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 and 10? We often forget this list. We may know the list, but we often forget that it's written to the Corinthians, and we forget what God says afterwards. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, 
nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. What a wonderful picture Paul paints there for us. None of these shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were you. But you've been forgiven. So Bolton says, are your sins any worse than these? And yet they were all forgiven. Is your transgression, is your bosom sin any greater than Adam's sin? Adam's sin opened the door to hell. Adam's sin opened the door to all the misery of the rest of the entire human race for all of time. Is your sin worse than that? Is your sin any greater than the murder of Christ, which the Jerusalem sinners committed, who were then forgiven and redeemed at Peter's sermon, which he preached later? Even if your sin, your bosom sin, is a scarlet sin, he said, even if it's a crimson sin, even if it's a crying sin, crying out for judgment, and even if you were to add to it Satan's aggravations, who always loves to blow things and swell things up bigger than they are, even if you were, if you were to add to your bosom sin all the horror of, that your imagination can put upon it, how grievous and terrible it is, yet Paul's antidote still triumphantly stands over top of it. What does Paul say in, first, or in Romans chapter 5, verse 20? Where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Whatever your sin is, God's grace can trump it. Whatever your sin is, however bad your bosom sin is, God can forgive it, Christ can cleanse it, the Spirit of Christ can sanctify you from it, no matter what it is. If, if your heart is wounded over it, if you grieve over it and hate it, and you cleave to the truth and the tenderness of Jesus in His promises, if you fall into His blessed and bleeding arms, then just as the heinousness of your bosom sin has abounded, so God's grace will abound all the more above it. What a tremendous comfort. Bolton opens the door wide and hears wide at this point. He says, whatever your bosom sin is, no matter how bad it is, take it to Christ and see what Christ will do with it. Why stand aloof and say, I'm too sinful? I'm too bad? My sin is too great? God won't forgive me. As long as you stand there and you don't move toward Christ, then you stand in unforgiveness. But it is unbelief which hinders you, not Christ which hinders you. Christ does not say to you, don't draw near to me. Christ does not say to you, everybody but you. Christ says to you what he says to all. Come. So if we stand apart from Christ, it is we who block the way, not Christ, not the gospel, not the truth as it is in Jesus. He says to us all, come. So Bolton says, go to Christ and see what he will do. He'll wash it and cleanse it. If you will bring your broken, believing heart to the mercy seat, We'll look at these verses together as we go through. Look how Bolton explains, and it, well, encourages, makes several point, points of encouragement to assure us of the forgiveness of Christ for all our sins. 
He gives us five grounds upon which God will forgive us whatever our sin is. It is His name and honor to forgive every iniquity, transgression, and sin. Exodus 34, verse 7. You remember when God declared His name to Moses? What is the name of God? The Lord. The Lord. A God merciful a God slow, to, a merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The three Hebrew words for sin, all three of them are included at this point. Nothing is left out. God forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. There is no, no thing that God will not forgive. It is His name and honor to forgive you. Go to Christ with a broken, believing heart, and it is His covenant to sprinkle clean water upon you that you may be clean and to cleanse you from all your idols, which includes your bosom sin. Ezekiel 37.25 What is the promise here given to us? The Lord says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. All your idols. That's that's an all-inclusive word, isn't it? Whatever your idols are. Whatever your bosom sin is, I will cleanse you of every single one. What a great promise. If If you go to Christ with a believing and a broken heart, It is His promise not only to pardon ordinary sins, but to pardon those sins that are red as scarlet and crimson. Isaiah 1.18, remember the word of the Lord. He says, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Whatever it is, the worst of the worst, the darkest and blackest of the black." As he says, as black as hell. It may be as black as hell. But God will forgive it. It is his promise to forgive it. If you go to Christ with a broken and a believing heart, it is his free compassion to cast all of your sins into the depth of the sea. Love this passage from Micah. Micah chapter 7, right at the end of Micah's prophecy. Beginning in verse 18. Who is a God like you, hardening iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depth of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. If we go to God with a believing, broken heart over our sins, it is His compassion and tenderness to cast all your sins into the bottom of the sea, never to be found again, whatever they may be. And then finally, it is His merciful power to blot out our sins as a cloud. 
Isaiah 44:22 I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like mist return to me for I have redeemed you This is the word of the Lord Whatever they are, and we know Israel's sins at this point were terrible and grievous. And God says, I've blotted them all out. Come to me. Return to me. I have pardoned them all. What a promise. So maybe it's the greatness of your sins. Maybe it's the blackness of your sins. Maybe it's the blackness and hellish nature of your bosom sin. Bolton says it doesn't matter what it is. Nothing but your unbelief can keep you from Christ. Nothing. The word of Christ to all sinners is come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And then Bolton ends with this sentence. But this mystery of mercy, this miracle of God's free love, is a jewel only for truly humbled souls. Let no stranger to the life of godliness meddle with it. Let no swine trample it under his feet. And that's how he ends. Bolton has just laid out in many previous pages, he's laid out an unbelievable and incredible promise of God. Bolton, in the name of Christ, has just promised forgiveness to the worst, the blackest of sinners. But lest anyone come along and snatch up comfort who has no right to it, Bolton says this is a jewel, a treasure for the truly humbled. If you are a stranger to the life of godliness, then don't touch this jewel. It's not yours. Not that the godly merit forgiveness but that godliness is the fruit of forgiveness. Understanding and being reminded that the work of Christ in a sinner's heart is not only forgiveness, but transformation. Not only justification, but sanctification. So don't snatch this up. Don't take this jewel and stick it in your heart and say, okay, I have comfort and I have assurance of God's forgiveness, and then continue on in your life of sin. Come back to Isaiah 55. Let the wicked forsake his way. Let the unrighteous forsake his thoughts. And come to me, for I will pardon. But no one has a right to that. No one has a right to this tremendous and incredible comfort and assurance of God's love and forgiveness who will not forsake his way. Christ came to save us from sins, not to save us to sins. When we come to Christ, we turn our back upon a life of ungodliness. So don't meddle with this precious jewel if you're a stranger to godliness. And then that third category, let no swine trample it under his feet. Don't presumptuously, arrogantly, contemptuously trample under your feet the promise of mercy and grace in Christ for sinners. Come to Christ. Be healed. Be forgiven. Be redeemed. Amen.